Everyone is a character. All characters are Tatiana. Conclusion, Tatiana is everyone. You're listening to Tatiana is Everyone, an Orphan Black podcast. My name is Chris, and Stephanie wasn't able to join us, but uh, I do have a guest here, Dawson, who you might remember with, remember with, who you might remember from our episode on, actually episodes on Tony and LGBT representation in season two of Orphan Black. Hello. Remember with Tony is a good one, I think, actually. I'm always with Tony. Tony is always with me. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> Spoiler warning, in effect, everything up through season three, which I think probably most people listening have already seen. So we're going to be talking about Project Caster and masculinity in Orphan Black, because Dawson actually wrote a post about it on his Tumblr. And actually, I think you were maybe commenting on somebody else's post. I forget. I was, yeah. But I was like, hey, Dawson, come talk about this. Yeah. There was a lot of caster talk, sort of, uh, well, I mean, from the introduction of them all the way through. Yeah, there, so. there has been. Somebody Somebody was bringing it up when we were doing the Orphan Black dollhouse panel at Dragon Con. Hmm. So I was like, we're planning to do an episode about that on the podcast. It's <laughs> like, we, I don't know, we ended up talking about caster for five or ten minutes or something in this completely off-topic tangent Excellent. during the panel. <laughs> The only way to talk about caster, really. <laughs> People were not happy. Yeah. <laughs> or perhaps the, the person asking was not thrilled with caster. But I think there there's some good points that caster brought up. Some, some thematic elements, let's say, since a lot of the series has been about exploring this group of women and what that means, and especially in the context of television, where that's not really something you see a lot representations of femininity or women. And so sort of, I think as a counterpoint to that, we got Project Caster in season three. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I don't even know that I would say it was a counterpoint. Like, I think the impression from everyone was that Caster was the balancing side of like telling the men's side of the story. But I actually, I would contend whether or not that's really true. I think it was... I don't. I know this is sort of. I know Caster wasn't a real popular addition to Orphan Black, but I think it was a really interesting extension of the explorations of agency and what that means. Which, while it very heavily impacts women, also impacts men, right? Like the. I think Orphan Black often is exploring the ideas of gender and what we and what we do with that culturally and what that means culturally. And I. I think Caster was just an extension of that exploration, right, of talking about. Because I think sometimes it's easy to forget that misogyny and patriarchy are oppressive systems, but they're not just oppressive to women, right? <laughs> they are also oppressive to men. So that's sort of the, unfortunately, sadly, there's a whole, like, there's the whole MRA movement and folks who are, don't give the greatest name to talking about men in relation to feminism and what that means. <laughs> Very true. And and really, my saying counterpoint is just a bad choice of words. <laughs> because I was trying to get at what you're talking about, where it's just sort of like, here's 
a group of men to explore the similar theme or the same theme, really. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Of identity, but like the other side of it. Yeah. And and how it it's such a funny thing, isn't it? How there was a there's this like I said, Tony's with me all the time. There's this great quote that from Tatiana when she was talking about she was talking about Tony and she said something to the effect of, you know, our show is about identity and it just made sense to explore gender identity in that mm-hmm. because that's an, such a huge part of, of our identities. Um, and I think the same is true in the explorations of, of Castor. And I, I also think because of a truly legitimate fear, I, I want to point out this is a totally reasonable and legitimate response when people who were fans of the show were up in arms about Castor being introduced. A friend of mine said, and I was a little bit like, but this is a great opportunity to explore not just the fact of oppression, but the system by which we create oppressors, right? This is the, like, I talk about this a lot, the, you can, you can empower women all you want, but if you don't, and I think we need to, and it's important, and I don't want to give that short shrift by any means, but additionally, you also have to strip away the things in our culture that turn men into weapons, that turn men into oppressors, because that's also an active part of patriarchy and misogyny and rape culture and all of the things that we're sort of constantly struggling with in our gendered world. Right. Yeah. So there was a really legitimate, um, a friend of mine and I were talking and I was sort of baffled because I was excited about the chance to explore all of that. And this friend was like, but Dawson, remember that on every show all the time, literally every day, women's storylines are squashed by the introduction of men. And you see it over and over again. And it's really true. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. It was a really legitimate concern that the show, which had been about women's lives and the realities of that, would would squash those stories with the introduction of, of this band of caster clones. I think out of that knee-jerk reaction, though, a lot of people were sort of reluctant to knee-jerk reaction is a bit unfair, actually. Out of that really totally reasonable concern, (laughs) I think a lot of people then were reluctant to discuss and engage and talk about the caster clones, which is kind of a bummer because I actually think, I suspect a lot of work went into talking about men through the lens of how our society messes with people based upon their gender. Yeah, I agree. And that was actually, it was kind of interesting when things started going that way at the end of season two, I had sort of a weird response to it because I was, I was simultaneously kind of disappointed that it was a thing that was happening already. But I also figured that they would continue this pattern of exploring this through this very specific, as you were just saying, this very specific lens of, you know, a a female centric show. Yeah, because they'd made such a point of doing that for the first two seasons. I didn't see why they wouldn't do that for a third season. So it's like, okay, let's wait this out and see how they present this. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, to each their own opinion, but I actually feel like they they did a great job of talking about talking about maleness through the lens of a society that I mean, of of a misogynistic and patriarchal 
society. Like it was a discussion about those systems and it was an exploration of those systems as they apply to men. One of the analogies I use is that the ugly part of patriarchy is that men and women are both put in cages. It's just that men's are stacked on top of women's, right? Like that's the like, and you got to get everybody out of the cages. Otherwise you're going to struggle to get anybody out of the cages. I like that analogy. Yeah. It's, and it, and it's, it's horrible too, right? Because men are like really reluctant to make any changes because they're on top. Why would they want to make any changes? <laughs> but they're still inside a cage, <laughs> um, which any guy who doesn't fit in with the appropriate like male standards can tell you is a problem. Gay men can tell you that, you know, effeminate men can tell you that. You know, guys who don't fit in the appropriate model of what it means to be a man face their own struggles, right? Different. They have their own privileges as well. Like, you don't stop being a man just because you don't fit the the culturally accepted way of being so. You still have your privilege and you still have to be aware of that. But you also are in a cave. <laughs> and learning to dismantle that is hard. Right. Okay, so let's talk about Project Casters specifically. And I think one of the things that comes up a lot is that the caster clones are less noticeably different from each other mm-hmm. than the Lita clones are. Have you ever seen that Tumblr post? It's like a picture of all of these like teenaged guys in pastel shorts and tan loafers and polo shirts. And there's like 10 of them all standing around in almost identical clothing. It's one of my favorite pictures of all time. If you haven't seen this photo, I'll see if I can find it and reblog it on my Tumblr for people <laughs> to find. Because one of the one of the things that I reference when I talk about men in relation to feminism is that women have have had and are having or in the process of working on their movement, right? In order to be allowed to be who they are and to live without judgment for that. Men have not. And I I think the homogenization of men is just one of many examples of that. So yeah, I think the decision to have the cast of clones be more homogenous and less individualized is a really interesting one. Because I, I, I actually think that's a reality for a lot of men. And I think it fits too with the fact that they are military and there's, you know, a certain a certain tendency towards uniformity, yeah. for lack of a better word there, too. And I think that's reflected because when we see them outside of the base camp that they have, they're actually much more different than we see them when they're there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Their personalities start to emerge a bit more. And I think this was maybe part of either the post you were commenting on or another post I'd seen. Yeah, I mean, there's a... There's a lot in that. You know, if you, if you, I feel like if you spend too much time thinking about it, like I do, um, <laughs> there's That's a lot. That's what we do here, Dawson. <laughs> it's what I love about your guys' podcast. <laughs> Thank you. There's, there's a lot in the caster storyline and it, it's all sort of interestingly connected together, right? Because the homogenization of men is about and is related to a lot of things we associate with the military industrial complex, right? Which is really intense rank systems that keep everybody in line and all following the same rules. 
and and teach dominance and submission and and the ways you're supposed to do that uh, a kind of uniformity that strips strips away some core elements of humanity most particularly to me is always emotion right and when you talk about how patriarchy shapes men into oppressors the very first thing it does is strip them of their emotions right except for anger and if you think about the military industrial complex you can you can be as angry as you want but if you cry you're a sissy right like that's the like it's all anger and stoicism right it's all anger and stoicism there is anger and no other emotions whatsoever that's it right that's the military industrial complex i mean that's how we that's that's how we train soldiers so there's a real sort of interesting like the way these things are all connected because of how that works right obviously men's emotions don't disappear they just repress them all down so what happens is then when they get outside of those structures, when they get outside of the military industrial complex, they get kind of crazy because they don't know how to be people, (laughs) which is a really great analogy for like guys who go and shoot up entire schools because a girl rejected them going to the dance, right? Like they don't know how to be emotional. And so they just like wreck everything because angry is okay, but nothing else is. So if you're like sad or hurt or, tired, right? You just default to angry because that's what we teach. So you get all messed up when you get outside of the established structures, which is where a lot of problems happen for a lot of men. Very, very dangerous, which we did see that same thing we saw with, with Castor. Of course, then we see that the actual establishment is encouraging that, which is a whole new set of problems. Good times. (laughs) Um, I'm really fond of the, like the military metaphor they created. Cause it's not like the actual military, it's the military. And then on top of that, all of the terrible, awful trappings of like men in childhood with mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and what we teach men about those relationships, <laughs> like the, the the military analogy that they use in Orphan Black in season three, they then also pump in all of the like the unhealthy relationship with with their mother and their father figure, right? <laughs> like their unhealthy relationship with their brother. <laughs> it's, it's it's a really kind of wonderful faux military, faux messed up family <laughs> setup that they did for the cast of clones. Like, wow, those guys are messed up (laughs) (laughs) understatement (laughs) yeah yeah for sure i think i mean it's it's sort of interesting right because it's it's all to me it's all so hard to talk about because it's all one thing right like everything's so interrelated it's hard to break it down into pieces because there's a scene where mark who is not in his nature a, a domineering personality has to step up and stop Rudy from killing Sarah. And he gets, he gets up in his face and he gets really domineering. And that's so interesting to me because it's a demonstration of the power structures of male culture. We actually, we teach men this. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many of your listeners are men. When you grow up as a young boy, part of what you learn is to fight and to like the ways in which 
men dominate each other and men dominate women. And it's, it's honestly sort of terrifying. My perspective on this is a really strange one um, because I was assigned female at birth. I grew up with like, like observing all of that stuff (laughs) and struggling. I always say there's a great post that goes around periodically that says trans women weren't socialized as men. They were socialized as closeted trans women. The same is true of trans men. We weren't socialized as girls. We were socialized as closeted trans men, which is a whole different type of experience. Right. And what I found after my transition is it took me years of like deconstructing all this really nasty sort of patriarchy stuff that I had absorbed through my skin as a young kid. And a part of that is these dominant structures and the way that, that it's, it's all about, you know, who's on top. So that was a really fascinating to see is like the way in which both as a part of the military system and amongst one another, there's a pecking order with the caster clones. It's, there's a really obvious pecking order. And that's a, that's a really, that's a thing that in real life we really teach young boys, which is scary. (laughs) I could talk about caster forever. There's so much stuff because that when you, when you teach men that social interactions are about dominance and you strip them of their emotive capacity. Well, you don't strip them of it so much as you basically stunt it, right? So culturally, one of the things we do, everybody, I I hope most people are aware of this, right? Like, be a man, don't cry, you know, boys don't cry. Like, there are ways in which we we stunt men's emotional capacity, right? So you, you stunt people's emotional capacity, which in turn causes them to have a lot of repressed stuff that they don't, that they have no idea how to deal with. Not just like don't want to, but literally do not know how to cope with. And then you teach them that relationships are all about dominance over one another or not, depending on where you are in the pecking order. And then you teach them that anger is the only acceptable emotion for a real quote unquote real man. Um, at the end of all of this, what you have, you've produced a weapon you've produced a volatile and dangerous weapon. Someone who (laughs) enforces their anger, which is the only emotion they can feel on other people through dominance and is unable to, or struggles to feel empathy because they're so emotionally stunted that it's really hard to dig any of that up, right? How could you possibly understand fear or pain or sadness when your job is to only feel anger? So there you go. There's a whole bunch of stuff about Caster. (laughs) Oh, boy. I just don't even know where to start because it is like hearing you talk about this. It is sort of a a whole new layer on on the Caster inclusion in the story. Yeah. For me. I mean, it's it's interesting. For sure. I I'm totally on board with a lot of people have said, you know, men always have their stories told. So like, why do we have to tell men's stories in this show that was focused on women? But at the same time, I don't think this particular story is told too often. Yeah. And I kind of appreciate at least that it's there. So I get people who, like, I'm not offended when people are like, "Ugh, I hate the cast of clones. You know, they're not my thing. I'm like, that's fair. I personally think there's a fascinating facet to what they did with Caster 
And that I love to compare the cast of clones and the lead of clones. It's one of my favorite things. Let's hear some then. Mostly I love to compare people's reactions to Caster versus Lita. Because most of the Caster clones are foils to one of the Lita clones. So Rudy is a foil to Rachel. Because they're awful. Right. I'm sorry, Rudy and Rachel fans, but they are. <laughs> I mean, they are. They do terrible, terrible things. They're They're both like... They both swagger around, right? They're both super domineering. They are both almost fanatically unwilling to be controlled. But what's interesting is when we describe them, right? If, if people were to describe Rudy, they would describe him as a warrior. And if people were to describe Rachel, they would describe her as a bitch, right? The corporate bitch. Straight out of Bitch Digest, right? We talk about them I that would, way. I would personally never describe either of them, either of those ways, but... <laughs> But you know but what I'm saying? Me. People do. You know? I'm sure they do. <laughs> the the sort of comparison there of like Rudy with his swagger and his, you know, no nonsense attitude is considered a badass, right? And Rachel in that same way is considered a bitch. And that's the reality of our gendered perspectives in our culture. On top of that, the ways that they do those things are very different. The swagger is different. What swagger looks like on a man is totally different than what swagger looks like on a woman. <laughs> but they are manifestations of the same thing. Hmm. So like, I mean, Rachel definitely has a swagger, but her swagger is not the same as Rudy's swagger, obviously. And, and in the same way, you know, they're both unwilling to be controlled. Rudy beats the crap out of people. Rachel manipulates, right? Like, it's a very gendered perspective on how men and women achieve similar things and and why 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 is that and why do we work that way and what are women taught versus what are men taught in terms of how to get what they want and what is the right way to do certain things it's a sort of i think a fairly nuanced comparison Mm -hmm. but it's just it's interesting to me because you're talking about how they're both unwilling to be controlled but to me they're both the sort of the right-hand people to their respective groups. They're the ones who are, you know. Isn't it fun? (laughs) Because the thing is, when you're unwilling to be controlled, there are two ways you can do that. You can rebel. You You can be Mark and Sarah, who are, again, foils to one another. You can rebel, in which case you will fight your entire life. You will be hunted your entire life. Like that's just the reality. And I can talk more about how men and women who step out of line with what is accepted culturally will always be targeted and will always be hunted and will always be threatened with correction or destruction. Um, So you can do that or you can be Rudy and Rachel and you can instead ally yourself to the system the proverbial right hand of the devil, if you will. Exactly. And and have your, your control that way. What's interesting to me is there's a sort of intrinsic imprisonment that goes with that. I think Rudy and Rachel are also the closest to the sort of most entrenched in, in the system, right? right. Like there's no escape for them. Right. Because of the road they've chosen to take. So while they feel in control, they're probably not. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> so to go back to your earlier metaphor, basically, they're aware that there are cages. And so they think I might as well be in the one on the top. Right. And be the person in charge of everyone else in the cage. Right. <laughs> it's that sort of thing. <laughs> so yeah, to me, like those comparisons are so fascinating when you start to look at those things. I, I also like to compare the rigidity and structure of the military system that the casters are a part of and the really family-like structure of the Lita clones, right? They think of themselves as, as sisters, which means something very different than when men call each other brothers. <laughs> I do actually think that's a really fascinating thing that they did, that they made the caster clones aware of not only what they are, but aware of each other and actually raised as brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's an enjoyable commentary on, on what that means too. Right. Like there's a, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be sisters with somebody, but being brothers with someone is not gentle. <laughs> it's not warm and familial and supportive. Like that's not, <laughs> that's not what brotherhood is like in our culture. That's not how we teach men to associate with one another. So that's a really interesting thing to me too. I, I was super fascinated when people were talking about the, uh, that really horrific scene with um was it rudy who gets with that girl and then seth comes right. in it was rudy and patty. Then seth, yeah yeah poor poor patty <laughs> like what a a that scene is horrific and is and is like so hard to watch but it's for me at least it was doubly hard to watch as i began to see the analogy to the real world i don't i don't know how many people know this or like how common it is to discuss it. But that's a really like teenage boy thing that we teach like young boys watching porn together. And like, you know, what's that? There's a, there's this great spoken word piece. And one of the lines is we shared the same, we shared the same. It's about like a, a guy and his best guy friend. We shared the same playboy and then call each other gay for weeks. Right. And like, there's a there's a real group think. There's a real um, group mentality to the objectification of women, and like, there's a reason people on Tumblr post about like there's nothing scarier than a group of white guys in their twenties standing around somewhere. You know, <laughs> like that's a that's a thing we teach young men. It's it's a very group think kind of kind of system, and so when when Rudy is like he's my brother. And he's like baffled. Why wouldn't that be okay? <laughs> it's a, it's a to me was a really fascinating commentary on how we, I mean, how we sort of teach young men to self reinforce. Right? They reinforce with one another this idea that mm -hmm. women are trophies and trophies are to be shared amongst your brothers. Ew. That's horrible. <laughs> it's awful, right? I it's they're like I open my mouth and I say these things. I'm like, what's I can't, it's true though. Like that's, that's what we teach young boys, whether we intend to or not. Like that's the culture we live in. I think most women who've been to college and have overheard some conversation between young men ha is aware yeah. to some extent of, of this kind of tendency. It's, it's disturbing. Yeah, it really is. And, and 
don't know. In my head, I'm always like, I wonder if women know this. And I'm like, women must know this. They're stuck living with us. Like, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, they know it from like the, the sharp end of the sword of these things, right? That like, this is, this is how we, this is how we teach young men to be weapons. It is, it always is for some reason, always kind of surprising to me. Like you might know a, a man, but then see him interacting with a group of his friends, completely different person. Changes, yeah. Scary, right? Very. Yeah. It yeah. I'm just gonna agree because you're just right. <laughs> I have nothing to add to that. And and I I I've told this story probably somewhere on my Tumblr before, but I vividly remember vividly remember after my transition, the first time I was in in a in a work meeting, in a conference room, in a meeting with like C-level executives, and one of the girls I work with came in to give someone something, and then she left. And like, I'm not gonna repeat it, but the comment someone one of the one of these C-level executive men twice her age made this comment that I I was so appalled by and everybody like laughed and were, they were sort of baffled that I didn't laugh. And there, there was a, I vividly remember in my head suddenly going, Oh God, I'm on the inside of these inside jokes now. And I have no desire to be on the inside of these inside jokes like this. That's not okay. Why do you think that's okay? And it was, it, it was weird. It was the first time I had experienced that. Like it was the first time I'd been in that sort of scenario. And when you're, you know, before my transition, like guys don't make those jokes around women. So to then be on the inside of that was really like shocking and revelatory in a really horrible way. Hmm. Like, wow, this is how men talk to each other when women are not around. That's terrifying. (laughs) In categories of things you'd rather not have known. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always very much like, how do I not be on the inside of this joke anymore? Like, I don't want any, can you not? (laughs) I want no part of this. And one of the things I say as well is, and I've heard a lot of people say this, right? Like, one of my privileges in life is that I can just not say anything. And, And I'm always like, I'm always inclined to not say anything, because it's a very uncomfortable scenario to be put in to be in a room with, like, one of those people was my boss, right? And like, Mm -hmm. It's a it's a risky and and maybe unsafe for my job and uncomfortable position to be in. And like the instinct is always to just not say anything. And I think that's where that I get into my like men as feminist lectures. Like you you don't get to call yourself a feminist unless you are taking the same risks women take every day. Women take that risk every day. Step up and say something, right? Like I have the privilege of just not saying anything and then I can just walk out of the room and it's not a big deal. Women don't have that luxury. So like, that's the, I don't know, I got off on a tangent a bit there, but these are the things I think about. Well, thank you for thinking about them. (laughs) Even though they're unpleasant to think about, I'm sure. Oh, they're so unpleasant. People are like, wow, Dawson, you have a lot of female friends. And I'm like, yeah, that's because men are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Men, plural, more than one, terrible. Um, in any event, (laughs) what else do we want to talk about? (laughs) Um, let's see. Oh, I did want to bring this up. 
I noticed, because I was, you know, thinking about this in preparation for recording the episode, as I sometimes do, (laughs) I noticed that Jennifer Fitzsimmons got more character development, at least in my mind. She got more character development than Miller and Parsons combined. Yes. So do you think that's a deliberate choice on on the show's part? Yes. I think among the things that Castor was representative of was the expendability the expendability of men. In our culture, men are very expendable. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's a holdover from like when only men entered the military, but there's a sort of there's a sort of expendability to men. I also I hope I don't know if this is true. I hope that a part of that was about maintaining the lens of the female perspective mm-hmm. that it's one of the things I liked about Castor was since they didn't develop super individually and they were like dropping like flies, like they all died real fast. <laughs> Pretty true. Yeah. Um, since that was true, instead of being men's stories, like requiring, like taking up space, like individual people's stories, taking up space in our storyline, instead it was an exploration and commentary on the structures of maleness and masculinity instead of like, here are all these guys and they're all like flawed and struggling and human. And that takes emotional capital away from this show about women. So hopefully that was in consideration as well. I assume it was in consideration as well. I assume it was too. That this is a show about women's experiences and a part of women's experiences are dealing with these kinds of men. And it was about that instead of about developing them as individuals. Right. And just a reminder to anybody who is confused still about who Miller and Parsons are. (laughs) Parsons was the one who Helena, she mercy mercy killed killed him because his brain was exposed and being experimented on. Mm -hmm. And Miller was the soldier who was in most of the series, but I don't think, or most of the series, most of the season... He's in most of the season, but uh, I don't know that he actually had any lines. Did he have any lines? Maybe one or two. One or two. He talked to Paul a couple of times, I feel yeah. like. I don't think anybody ever said his name. No. <laughs> I had to go look it up somewhere. It was on his name badge, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> that might be where I looked it up. Because I think there was a whole story. He he had a prosthetic leg. Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right. Which they kind of hinted at in an episode, but never really did anything with. And yeah. Yeah, there was a whole thing. There was more backstory written up in articles that were released before the season aired <laughs> than there was on the show. So Yeah. Well, some of that is probably the effects of of production, right? It's like once you start cutting things together and figuring it all out, you Oh, I'm sure. Because you want to have the character there, you know, to do something with possibly, but yeah, there's only so much they can fit in, so. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, I assume, I don't I don't know, but I assume from what I know of the, the, when you're telling stories like this, like, it's so hard to balance. And on top of that, they knew probably early on when people started responding to the caster reveal that they were going to have to really work to balance maintaining this show about women and women's perspective and women's bodies and women's experiences with who these caster clones are. It's entirely possible that 
they planned a lot more individual development for the casters and then realized that it would be better for them to be this sort of monolithic representation of maleness and masculinity, right? Because that's the, that's the story. Mm -hmm. In which case they would have just cut a bunch of stuff out. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think it worked the way they did it because then, you know, there's, there are the characters that you know are there, that they exist. Mm -hmm. Basically, especially Parsons to me sort of proves that there are more of them out there, though we don't know how many. Right. And, and so, yeah, you really just need the, few that are frequently interacted with mostly mark and rudy so yeah for sure yeah and the, all of the other casters that are like around but we don't really know anything about does nicely lend itself to the like monolithic representation of maleness in our culture so do we want to move on to the other portrayals of masculinity or not so much masculinity <laughs> masculinity or lack thereof <laughs> The sliding scale of masculinity <laughs> that is orphan black characters. The sliding scale of masculinity. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yes, we should definitely do that. Because I think, I don't know, again, just sort of thinking about this before we recorded, I, I feel like Aldous Leakey is an interesting example. Because I, I feel like he's really sort of a, a representation of being in a position of privilege. Yeah. He's such a, like, slippery character to me. Like, I can't decide if he's an evil mastermind or a father figure. I think he's both. (laughs) I feel like he's sort of an evil mastermind who thinks of himself as a father figure. Yeah, that's fair. Very true, very true. He, um... Yeah, he's he's such a typical representation of like rich white man thinks he knows best and like really sees himself as helping everybody, mm-hmm. which is terrible to think about, but true, like really imagines himself as this benevolent like father figure when in reality he's a creep. I mean, they had him creating artificial wombs in season two creepy it's it's pretty weird as like his his hobby passion project thing you know like you do for your (laughs) hobbies yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, oh leaky yeah leaky was an odd duck and of course the whole relationship with delphine too but yeah i don't think anybody wants to talk about that no i don't think anyone does I would talk about that in the context of Delphine, who I find to be a fascinating character, but then everyone will cry because everything about Delphine is sad right now. <laughs> it's true. No, I, um, yeah, I, I think, again, representations of maleness masculinity in this show as seen through, through the lens of, like, how awful men as a group are, right? <laughs> like, I have lots of individual male friends who I think are great. Hopefully, I'm at least an okay guy in my individual self. I think you're great. Thanks. (laughs) But men as a grouping, right, like have all of these really sort of creepy, uncomfortable perspectives on their place in the world and what they can and can't do and how they do and don't help people. 
Leaky is, you know, he's up there with the... He's like the dude who would mansplain to people. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I imagine (sighs) him as like the ultimate mansplainer, right? Like, (laughs) woman with four doctorates, highly educated, incredibly capable, specialist in her field, and he's like mansplaining biology to her. You know, like, that's how I imagine Leaky. (laughs) I'm now imagining him doing that to Delphine all the time. You know he did all the time. I'm sure. Come on. Yeah. Poor Delphine. But we're not talking about Delphine. We're talking about about the men on Orphan Black. Okay, let's talk about Paul. I'm curious oh, what you Paul. have to say about Paul. Paul is my favorite because Paul is the analogy to the hot girl trope. <laughs> Which it's true. It's is true. wonderful, in my opinion. Like people are like, oh Paul, like he's such an inconsistent character. Sometimes he's like deadly military guy, sometimes he's like loving boyfriend and sometimes like and i my favorite thing about that is that's what we do that's what we do to women on tv shows we have the one hot girl right and we just move her into whatever role we need her in because we need a girl on the show to be hot (laughs) next time somebody mentions that to you just just say have you seen a james bond movie he's a bond (laughs) girl he's a bond girl he is he's a bond girl like his job is to be whatever is needed in the plot line while being hot Right, that's the like, that's sort of the thing. They do call him Hot Paul. They do. They call him Hot Paul. They call him Big Dick Paul. Right, like I. That's mm-hmm. one of my favorite lines because that is right there. Right, what is Paul? He's a big dick. <laughs> that's what he's for. That's what he's there for. <laughs> you said it. I didn't. <laughs> and I'd say it again because I am. Felix in the scenario. <laughs> yeah. So to me, like, that's what's interesting about Paul is he is an inconsistent character, which is exactly what we do to women all the time. Like, they're there just to fill whatever roles we need them to fill and be beautiful. And that's what they did with Paul. Paul fills whatever role is needed and sits there and is pretty. That's his job. <laughs> As we all talk about his abs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He is, he is the subject of a lot of objectification. I really, I will say, to like the cherry on top, if next season Sarah is tormented by Paul's death, they will have effectively fridged Paul Dearden. <laughs> <laughs> and that will complete the trope for me. <laughs> but, but he got to go out on his own terms, kind of, so. He did, that's true. He got the heroic exit. In a blaze of glory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at least there was that. At least he had that. <laughs> so let's talk about Cal. Cal is an odd one to me. I don't know what to make of him. Because I, I think, I don't know, again, to me, Cal's sort of a, an inversion of a trope because he's sort of, he's more parental to Kira, or really that's his sole yeah. function. <laughs> he's he's the stay-at-home mom. He, he is, yeah. <laughs> but a dad. He's the stay-at-home with, dad. With the side of love interest for Sarah. Right. Yeah. One of the fun things that, that Orphan Black does, sort of getting a little bit away from talking about the men in the show, <laughs> is with Sarah, she is one of, she's like the hard-boiled, you know, haunted, messed up anti-hero that like stubbly tall, dark men usually get to play, right? Sarah is that, to a T. Guys like 
Dylan Bruce and right. Mikhail Hussman usually get to play. Yes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And what's beautiful about it is then Cal is like the long lost love, right? And, and, and all of those guys have a long lost love somewhere. So really it's Cal who should have been fridged, honestly, but <laughs> <laughs> um, season four. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, was gonna say, I don't think we got enough screen time with him for it to, to hurt enough. It's true. I'm sorry to anyone who loves Cal. I don't actually think Cal should die. I just, it's just such a funny thing to me, the inversion of those, of those sorts of tropes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Cal is like in, in that scenario with the, like the hard boiled dude, he would be like the ex-girlfriend he's still in love with, or, you know, the woman he divorced who he's still, in lo- who he's still in love with. Right. Like that would be the story. Right. He's that, but for Sarah, <laughs> which is beautiful. I do love it that they are filling essentially typically these female roles that that are so I don't know stereotypical but it's like a military guy who's a terminator and a lumberjack who mm-hmm. lives in a cabin. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. <laughs> I know he's not really a lumberjack. It's a fandom thing. He's in case you didn't know. Definitely a lumberjack. He's not, <laughs> but we're going to pretend. <laughs> he wears you know, flannel. I was going to say the clothing and the cabin say otherwise yes exactly <laughs> he was wasn't he like chopping wood at one point i honestly don't remember maybe there's just a wood pile by his cabin anyway cabin and flannel lumberjack. he's a lumberjack and he's okay that's right <laughs> <laughs> oh. okay so so let's talk about donnie oh who donnie <laughs> is so I don't know, atypical, I guess, for representations of men. He is. Donnie is, he, he's a bit of what we've started to see men be represented as. I think of like, besides him, I think of, um, oh, who's the guy? Who's Anna's love interest in Frozen? Oh, um. <laughs> not yeah, the I'm evil not prince remember dude, his name. The other guy. The guy with the reindeer. Y'all know right. what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think of him, right? Like, this has become more of a thing. It's almost like, so what's funny is, because we are not good at dismantling the structures, some of what's happened is you've ended up with, like, people are like, women are empowered. So what does that mean for men? Probably that means they're not anymore. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and that's what I struggle with with Donnie, is, like, it's almost like... It's almost like people felt like they had to, like, reverse it. Exactly. It's one of those, like, they can't get rid of the dynamic, so they just have to invert it. Right. Which is weird to me. Like, can't we just abolish that dynamic, like, altogether? And I will say, in some senses, like, Donnie is very, like, he is very steely a couple of times, and he, like, you know, has his moment of glory with with uh, Angie and Vic and... You know, he he does some things. Mm-hmm. I I just wish, yeah, I wish we could just get rid of the dynamic entirely. I feel like they started to switch it up with season three. Yeah, it's still there a little bit, but I feel like they've really done a lot to flesh out Donnie's character, where that's not all he is anymore. Yeah, very true, very true. I do like that he's kind of an idiot, though. That's <laughs> one of my favorite things because. I don't know, maybe because I'm kind of an idiot. But also, like, there's a... 
I will say there's, there's something powerful about allowing men to just be big, dumb idiots. (laughs) 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 He's, you know, he, he's the kind of guy who just says stupid stuff and, and it's funny and I'm glad that it's funny. I'm glad he's there for the comic relief. I enjoy the comedy that is Donnie, Mm -hmm. but also it's kind of like they've actually allowed like the big dumb idiocy of men to be big dumb idiocy as opposed to like, like I think of shows like um, everybody loves Raymond and like those kind of shows where guys are big dumb idiots, but we act like they're heroes. Mm -hmm. And with Donnie, he's actually a big dumb idiot and we act like he's a big dumb idiot and that's okay. It's okay to be a big dumb idiot. Some of us are. (laughs) We don't have to pretend you're some kind of great catch. (laughs) You're fine the way you are, Donnie. But I, I, you know, they have made an effort to, I think, counterbalance the big dumb idiocy with with a lot of caring for his family and that kind of thing. Oh, or maybe that's part of the big dumb idiocy. I don't know. <laughs> well, and and that's a that's where some of the to me that's where some of the some of the strength comes in as well. Is Donnie's kind of the opposite of the Castor clones, right? The Castor clones are this representation of all of the things we teach men that teaches them not to be emotional and teaches them not to care too much and teaches them just to be angry and just to be um, domineering and possessive. And Donnie is not those things and decidedly not those things. And where we had Caster as this sort of faceless danger that is men as a group, we have Donnie as men as individuals, as a man with humanity, right? And who's a big dumb idiot sometimes, but also loves his family and also cares about his wife and even when he does stupid things, wants to help and wants to protect people. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's the inverse of, of the faceless caster. It's the, what happens when you start to deconstruct some of those things. And some of what happens is men stop being like miraculously tall, dark and handsome and dashing. Like that stops happening. You, they're kind of dumb, just like everyone else, you know, (laughs) But also they're allowed to be emotional. And so they know how to care about their family and they can appreciate being protective and loving. And yeah. I feel like with Donnie, we see a lot of doing basically bad things for the right reasons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well-intentioned. Yeah. Or really unintentionally doing bad things for the right reasons. Yeah. I guess is really what it is. Yeah. He like... He has good intentions and like fails a lot at actually doing. <laughs> Nothing works out quite the way he means it to, but yeah, yeah, oh, Donnie. I have a lot of affection for Donnie. Yeah, I was um, speaking of Donnie. There was that whole like with uh, with Jason when Jason punches Donnie, right? And there's the whole like mm-hmm. Donnie being jealous thing. And people were real upset about it, I feel like. Or I saw some folks who were upset about it who were like, oh, that's so gross. Why would Donnie do that? But what I like about it is Donnie was so spectacularly bad at it. Donnie was so bad at being like the protective jealous husband. <laughs> like, I really liked that. It's 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 this sort of idea that... I don't know. I like to think that the closer men get to their own emotions and their own humanity, the worse they get at being domineering and at like winning the fight for someone's affection, right? Like we, we stop being so good at that because why would I fight people when I could not? That'd be great. 
So yeah, I really just, I enjoyed that he was so bad at at it. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) I should also mention one of our listeners referred us to this article written by Dr. Nerdlove. I'll post it in the show notes. I don't agree with all of it, but I think there are some interesting points. It's interesting stuff. Discussions on Donnie. Yes. Anything else? Not that I can think of. That's pretty much it. All right. I'm curious what kind of feedback we're going to get on this. (laughs) I know. I just like, I just want a disclaimer that this is a touchy topic. (laughs) And talking about men in the context of a really women-centered show is hard. And talking about men in the context of patriarchy is hard because men are oppressed by patriarchy, but at the same time receive a whole bushel full of privilege because of it as well so like how do you balance those two things and i just want to say that i do my best to talk about those things in a way that does not minimize women's experiences but instead complements the reality that men are a part of they're both oppressed by and agents of a, a system that has caused a lot of harm to women and I don't know. I hope people will be generous about that. (laughs) Yes. Please understand that we're coming from a very specific uh, point here, or or trying to discuss a very specific thing, perhaps, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. But yes, if you have any comments, please send them to us. Either either email us at feedback at tatanaiseveryone.com. Leave a comment on our show notes at tatianaiseveryone.com slash 92. You can call us at 972-514-7223. You can also record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to us at the email address. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at TIE Podcast. And thank you, Dawson, for for joining us. My pleasure. Well, me joining me, I guess. (laughs) Totally us. Stephanie was here in spirit. <laughs> and in this episode, Donnie's terrible fighting skills were played by Tatiana Mislani. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.